saying that whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awake does so by becoming fully awake to the former truths. That's what most of the talk would be about. The truth ain't hard to see. It's all around. It's everything this breath inside of me. Question everything. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Podcast. We're throwing you a little bit of a curveball today. My name is Andrew Chapman, and I am here to interview my first Buddhist teacher, good friend, longtime uh, companion on the Dharma path, Dave Smith. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Dave's history in recovery, some of his thoughts about Buddhist recovery, what that means, what maybe the future of that holds for him and the work that he's doing. So, yeah, I'm really glad to be here with you, Dave. Thanks for asking me uh, to come along. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, totally. It's great to see you. I couldn't think of a better person to do this with, so um, I'm happy to be doing this. Yeah, it's great. Dave and I have been uh, friends for about a decade now, and he founded the Dharma Group in Nashville, Tennessee, that's still living and thriving today. Um, so I thought it would be a good fit to just talk through some of the your history with recovery and uh, some of your thoughts about Buddhist recovery in general. I'm going to throw you some random questions. So some of them will be kind of uh, shooting from the hip. Good. And some of them will be more general about recovery. My first question is a two-parter. It's about your early recovery. Can you tell us a little bit about that time in your life? Um, how did you come into recovery? Was it like an intervention? Did people come to you? Did you just hit a bottom? And and what were you like? What was Dave Smith like in, in early recovery that you remember? You know, that was a very poignant time. And for a variety of reasons I can't describe, I have a very strong, vivid memory of that time. You know, you know, as the joke goes, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. You know, I was 28 years old. I had everything I wanted. I was in a successful band. I was touring in Europe. I was drinking and smoking and basically doing anything I ever wanted to do with zero consequence. I was living in Amsterdam, and it was like, the Pinocchio cartoon when they go to the island where they're smoking and playing pool and then they turn into donkeys. The I all the misfit toys. Yeah. I'm, I turned into a fucking donkey, you know, and I got three donkeys <laughs> in my yard right now. And, uh, the actually the harder part for me was quitting my band. So I quit my band. Everybody was pissed off. Everybody hated me. The band hated me. The record label hated me. The booking agent hated me. And I moved back in with my mom and dad at 28 that was really the probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Right after that, a couple of days after that, I said, well, I might as well quit drinking too. That was actually a little easier than quitting my band. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went, you know, and I'd known about AA. I went to Alateen. So I knew, I kind of knew I was going to end up in AA eventually. Mm-hmm. And then I went and saw, I went with my teacher's daughter, my friend Chandra Smith. We drove from Boston to Northampton. We went and saw a Sokni Rinpoche Dharma talk. And then she took me to an AA meeting that night. And then I started reluctantly, stubbornly, unwillingly started to do the 12 steps. Um, And then I was, of course, leaning on my Buddhist practice, thinking that would somehow help me. And then I, then I, as you know, I went and sat the fucking 90 day retreat at IMS with 60 days sober. And um, it wasn't that bad of a time for me. I mean, I had a lot of hope. 
you know, I had a lot of hope that I could turn that I could turn things around. In being on the retreat was was good and it was challenging. But the big thing for me at that point in my life was I was really concerned and really scared of the power that my mind had over what I did. Like I really felt like my mind was in control and I didn't have much to say. Yeah, and this brings me to the second question. What what were the things? So you'd mentioned that you'd already been introduced to Buddhism at that point, and then you were getting introduced from a friend to AA, to a, a sobriety, a recovery program. What were the things that you grabbed onto in early recovery that you felt like were were life rafts? Like what were the lifesavers and what were the turnoffs? And have any of those things changed over time? You know, like things that used to be really turned off to early on that you feel like are essential now or things that you used to really hold on to that are not as important now. No, I get it. Yeah, that's a lot, but that's good. You know, I um, I had a lot of delusion and a lot of stubbornness and a lot of like early recovery fucking characteristics. And I believed with, with total, total faith and confidence that if I sat the three-month retreat at IMS, I would come out of that retreat and I would sort of be all better now. Mm-hmm. Like, I really thought I was going to bang it out, if you will. I was like, uh-huh. 30 days, 90 days on retreat, I'm going to own my mind at the end of this. That is not what happened. You know, I left that retreat as confused as I did when I went in. But the one thing I've always had, and I always attribute this to my relationship to Stephen Smith, is that my initial Dharma you know, transmission when I was 18 was so intense that I never, even till to this day, never really lost faith that it was the right thing to do, even though it was hard. And so I, you know, I started, I went back to my parents' house, I traveled a little bit, and I started going to AA, and I just realized I needed to get a sponsor. I didn't want to do it. And I saw this guy, Tim, speak at an AA meeting in the church basement of the church where my parents were married, my uncles were married, my grandparents were married, my sister, my uncle's funerals were at this church. So I was like traumatically familiar with this church. Mm. And I saw this guy talk and he scared the shit out of me. And, you know, I asked him to be my sponsor and it was hardcore, old school, Northeast, big book thumping Call me at six o'clock every day. I call at six oh three. He's like, What time is it? You wanna you wanna, you know, you wanna keep working with me, you call at six o'clock. I mean, it was rigid and black and white. And he he convinced me and I mean I was already convinced, but I realized I actually really needed to turn my will and life over to the care of something other than my own mind. And for me at that point, it was a sponsor and it was AA sponsorship and it was go through the book, do the steps. You know, I did it and I and I was scared of my mind. And and this guy, he was exactly what I needed. He wasn't impressed with me at all. He didn't care that I sat a ninety day retreat. You know, and he was he was kind of a dick. And I'm so <laughs> glad I had that because I needed somebody to tell me, you know what, dude, you don't know shit. You know how mm-hmm. to drink and do drugs and steal and lie. That's what you know how to do. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I really appreciate that that level of accountability. So sponsorship was an important tool, if you will, early on. Totally. What were some of the things that you were maybe more turned off about either in the Buddhist practice or community or AA in general? 
I mean, we, when I started working with my sponsor, I had maybe six months. And having come off the retreat, I kind of shut the door on the Dharma. I was like, and this is back in 03. I was like, this is for like rich, white, well-adjusted people. You know, I was like, I just don't think I'm cut out for this level of trying to fucking end suffering. And so I kind of gave up on it. And, you know, at that point, nothing in the 12 steps really bothered me. I mean, the God thing was, you know, at best annoying. Um, I really embraced it. There really wasn't anything I had a problem with. And if I had a problem with it, then I realized it was my problem. Mm-hmm. So um, I was sort of stark raving willing at that point. Yeah. Um, and so for the first five years being the 12 steps, I mean, I was a thumper. It was, to me, the answers to the problems of my life lied in the pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe that with total abandon. Yeah, to change the pace a little bit, I just want to jump around questions to questions in no particular order. Lots of these newer recovery programs, whether they're Buddhist recovery or smart recovery or just the different things that are popping up, are casting a pretty wide net. They're including process addictions. They're including family of origin, like ACA, adult children alcoholics. Do you think it's a good thing for recovery programs to cast a wide net and to be all inclusive because it is um, joining everyone together under this human condition? Or do you feel like there's a relatability to being specific about this is a group for people in substance use or eating disorders, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think it's both. You know, I'm glad the net has gotten wider. My my Buddhist training and my emotional intelligence training tells me that, you know, what you're addicted to is basically irrelevant, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the 12 steps, what are there, 20 some odd 12 step programs now to meet that demand? And so the one thing about the 12 steps that can be good and problematic is the symptomology. So I go to AA because I'm an alcoholic. You go to NA because you're a drug addict. Someone else goes to AA because they're... The, the primary problem is the internal craving and addiction that drives us to the object. Now, the object is somewhat, I think, irrelevant. But I also think that for some people who really identify as being a meth head or a crackhead or they really feel like drug addiction, I think it's great that they can go to a particular room where that's what's being discussed. So I actually think both are good. Um, And, you know, they both have their drawbacks as well. Yeah. uh, uh, What's your view on abstinence if we're talking about, let's just start with substances? Well, you know, it's pretty clear from whether you're talking about the Buddhist tradition or the 12-step tradition, abstinence is kind of a, a a prerequisite. It's kind of a deal breaker, right? Like you can't go to AA and drink, which is why I think the, um, the emphasis on time is really, really helpful. But, you know, it gets weird because drugs, alcohol, I think if you don't need it to survive, then abstinence is the way. Uh, and that gets tricky with things like sex addiction because you don't need to have sex, but abstinence around sex can also become destructive also. Like food, people need to eat food. So I think, you know, for me, substance abuse addiction is my primary way that I've looked at addiction. And I think abstinence, honestly, is the only method um, mm-hmm. where food and sex and, but even gambling, right? Like if you have a gambling addiction, you got no business gambling. Mm-hmm. And... um So I think 
But I also do believe, and I'll say this with a great deal of reluctance, me and Chris Willard were talking about this recently, is that for some people, like your, your person who's been relapsing for 25 years, has been to 100 treatment centers, it looks like they've tried everything, they're probably just not going to make it. For somebody like that, maybe harm reduction is not bad. For somebody like that, maybe ibogaine and ayahuasca is not that bad. But I don't think that should be the first. That should be like the in case of emergency break glass. You know, I think harm reduction is like when all else fails, you know, mm-hmm. try the Obigane, Ibogaine and the ayahuasca and the harm reduction. But trying to go at that as an earlier solution, I think, is just kind of foolish. Yeah. Do you think that when I came into recovery, one of the things that was so helpful is the rigidity that you spoke of earlier. It was very clear what the message of the program was totally. and what the structure of the program was. Do you feel like any of that gets lost in casting a wide net for the newcomer? If you're walking into a meeting and it's about the human condition towards craving and trying to escape, you know, ourselves, is it helpful to basically say we're an abstinence based program and this is how we work or we're a sex addiction related program and this is how we work? Yeah, you got to have a good map. And, you know, the funny thing about that is Alcoholics and drug addicts, from my experience, are the most black and white thinkers I've ever met. And then they come into a program that offers a black and white program, and then they, then they resist and they squirm. And they're like, you can't tell me what to do. It's like, dude, this is totally designed to be a companion to your black and white thinking. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's yeah. just funny. But I think that, yeah, for a lot of people, and probably the majority of people the trail of breadcrumbs should be fairly obvious. Mm. You do that, you know, that's why the the word of the steps is good. And I think that that's one of the things that these alternative, which is one of the reasons I started this Buddhist recovery program, frankly, is none of most of these alternatives, they're too ambiguous in their kind of approach. And they're too actually client focused, you know, they're where they just kind of, it, allows the person in early recovery to squirm and to bob and to weave and to manipulate and to rationalize. And so that, that, that can be often a big problem. So can you tell us some of those things that would be the, the ins and outs of a Buddhist recovery program, like in your mind, and I know that it's new and it's evolution, but what does a Buddhist recovery program entail? If a 12-step program entails going to meetings, getting a sponsors, so on and so forth, what, what does that entail in a Buddhist recovery program? Well, for me, you know, with Buddhism and Dharma work, you know this, every once in a while, you kind of have to plant a flag. You have to kind of say, this is how I hold it, you know, with some degree of looseness, but you have to do that at time. And I think the first thing that I would say about that is what is that it demands a recognition of three trainings, is that you do have to train and you do have to practice in ethics, in sila, and in integrity, which the 12 steps certainly does. But Buddhism's pretty clear about what that looks like. Uh, it also asks you to train in the mind, in the heart, the meditation, which, which Buddhism, let's be honest, if we look at the world's traditions, Buddhism is the one who's put the most investment in training the mind. So they're pretty good there pretty good there. And then there's a philosophy, there's a, there's a methodology. So it's like, um, you know, the things like the Four Noble Truths, or for me, actually, the Eightfold Path does a lot more of the heavy lifting than the first three truths do. Um, yeah. 
And so from there, that's that's kind of a lot, but that's sort of the map. And then the other thing that's really problematic that that has I was talking about this with my students yesterday has driven me crazy for almost three decades is actually how confusing the fucking noble truths are. And I'm taking the stand and, and actually leaning pretty heavy on my one of my teachers, Stephen Batchelor, that there are approach to the four truths from a Buddhist recovery perspective is an acknowledgement that there is no end of dukkha. And in fact, that your addiction, if we really get real, addiction is just a strategy to end dukkha. And so if your strategy is to get rid of pain and anguish and all of the ways in which dukkha exists for us, then Buddhism just becomes the new tool that you pick up to try to solve the same already impossible strategy. Yeah, you used to tell me, Andrew, you can't outsmart suffering. You really can't. <laughs> and you know, in Orthodox Buddhism, and I, I got some, I get crap for this. Stephen Boucher got crap for it. I don't really care anymore. But I think, in particular, for the drug addict or the person in addiction, this idea of ending suffering as a goal is very dangerous. And I think that. If you look at the two paths of liberation, you have Panya Vimuti, liberation through wisdom, and Chitta Vimuti, liberation through the heart. The Buddhist recovery path is a liberation through the heart practice. It's a relationship practice. It's our relationship to dukkha that really defines how well we do in this world. Trying to end it is just actually, to me, aversion. And aversion sure. is not highly spoken of in the Buddhist tradition. So would you say from this perspective, maybe if I was to to put it really plainly, the goal is to suffer less and to suffer better? Yeah, you can say that. I don't know. Yeah, I, that's, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, but that's even got a little derogatory of a tone to it. To me, I would flip the script and say the goal of the practice is to have a meaningful life. Mm. And it's not so much that craving and reactivity and tanha causes suffering, which certainly it does. But the message, I believe, that the Buddha was trying to lay down was not that it's creating suffering, but it's actually blocking me from being happy. It's mm. blocking me. It's hindering me, the hindrances. It's hindering me. It's blocking me. It's creating limits. You know, that's that word Mara. People talk about Mara. Mara is the one who creates limits. And it's that part of your mind that says, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you won't do this, and you won't do that. So tanha is not so much the cause of suffering or the creation of clinging and addiction. It's certainly all that. But what it's blocking me from, to me, is where the heavy lifting is. And it also makes me more willing to try. I'm like, well, I want to be happy. For me, the idea of being happy is a lot more attractive than the idea of not suffering. Yeah. Yeah, the emphasis being on the result, the freedom, the happiness, the meaningfulness that can come out of life. Yeah, that's Rather right. than the problem. So I'm going to throw you a curveball here. We're going to play a little uh, game of sorts. It's cool. a Sophie's choice. So this means you can only have one. You can only choose one. And I know some of these are unfair and some of these may even be obvious, but you can only have one. What do you choose? Biggie or Tupac? Oh, I got to go with Biggie, no doubt. Sati Patana Sutta or the Four Noble Truths, the discourse on the Four Noble Truths? I got to go with the Four Truths. The Clash or the Ramones? Oh, the Clash. 
comedy or music? Oh, fuck. Now you got me. I'm going to have to go with music, I think. Five aggregates or dependent origination? Oh, that's impossible. I think, <laughs> I think for simplicity, I'll have to go with the aggregates. I thought you would pick that. We have just a few more. The Beatles or the Rolling Stones? I'm going to go with the Rolling Stones. Pizza or Mexican food? Oh, that's not even fair. That's a bang. That's a bang bang. It's I pizza and that Mexican food. <laughs> I knew you would hate this one the most. I have to say, I'm gonna go with the Mexican food. Okay. David Bowie or Prince? Oh, Prince. Okay. The Abbey Dama or the Vasudhi Maga? Oh, Abbey Dama. Okay. You can chuck that Vasudhi Maga right in the garbage. <laughs> Retreat practice or home practice? The last one. Ooh, that's not even fair. I mean, you know, I would have to say retreat practice because if my because my retreat practice is going to support my home practice rather than the other way around. Although sure. I do a lot more home practice than I do retreat. I mean, me, me and Shannon joke. We our house is a, basically a retreat center since COVID, except <laughs> for we have kids and dogs and animals and not a lot of noble silence. Yes, it's forced retreat practice. Totally. So let's go back to uh, what we are talking about. What does a Buddhist recovery program entail? Um, I specifically want to ask now about what do you think meditation's role is in helping to someone to maintain sobriety? You know, that's a, that's a hard question because I wear a lot of hats in this. And I just want to say meditation's not for everybody. I don't think everybody in early recovery needs to meditate. I don't. And I think it's not cool to think that. Um, I think, A, if somebody's open to it, then that's a good iron to strike. But I think that if you are open to it and you do give it a, a shot, I think the main advantage that you'll see is that you in your mind, your mind is, you know, there's more going on than your mind. And you can have mindfulness of your mind. You can be aware of your mind as a kind of process, an event that occurs. And then there's the world we live in. And to separate those is helpful. And I think that just to get that little short moment of ease or that shortened moment of mindfulness, just a little break, a little break in the stream of thoughts is for, you know, for me it was, but a lot of people have reported to me over the years that that's what really help them with just a, just a in-breath and an out-breath where they're not being totally getting their ass kicked by their mind is worth its weight in gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this brings me to the next question, which is in early Dharma practice, I feel like we embrace the simplicity of quote-unquote mindfulness, being able to follow the breath and observe that thoughts take us away and to let the thought pass and return back to the breath or however you want to look at it, the simplicity. What is your view on meditation techniques, like noting practice or focusing specifically on concentration yeah. over insight or heart practices, so on and so forth, technique? Yeah, my, I mean, my mind changes on this a lot. You know, it's, it's kind of like one of, I, I use the music analogy because I'm a musician and it's like, how good do you have to be, how much guitar technique do you have to be to be able to play? Now, if you learn the minor pentatonic scale, which you can learn really quickly, you can sit in with a blues band and not suck too bad. You know, so 
we do have to develop some technique. I think that there's no way around that. How much technique you need, you know, from teacher to teacher, the opinion on that varies greatly. So I I try to keep it a little bit more general and say, well, there's essentially three kinds of Buddhist meditation. There's the called concentration, which I actually don't like that word. I prefer to call it attention training. So we train on attention. We train in mindfulness or the cultivation of awareness. Awareness actually means more to me than mindfulness. That word has been so watered down. So we train in the cultivation of attention, the cultivation of awareness, and then the cultivation of the heart. So if you're practicing some basic techniques around those three, I think you're well on your way. But people tend to put all their eggs in one basket. Mm. So I, I believe, and I, and I learned this really from my friend and teacher, uh, George Haas, around just being able to understand that there's a multiplicity of practices. And you just kind of want to be a little bit fluent. So if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, it feels a little different than doing like a guided compassion practice. So I think you just want to get a felt sense for what attention training feels like, cultivation of awareness feels like, heart practice feels like. And I think if you get those three up off the ground, I think you're well on your way. So what is your instruction or suggestion for someone that's new in recovery in terms of a meditation practice? Like what's the basic uh, blueprint for them? You know, I think in, in the most least sense, five or 10 minutes a day. Um, anything's better than nothing. I also am reluctantly say this, but I, 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 I don't know that it's true, but I've re- heard people report. I think a lot of people early on do really well with all these apps where they can, everybody's got their earbuds in all the time anyway. I think actually doing some just guided meditations, even if that's all you do at the beginning, even if you do like a headspace, I don't even care what kind it is. Because even all secular meditations are still doing one of these three Buddhist trainings. Mm-hmm. Like you can't get away from that. So if somebody's doing concentration through a headspace app, um, I think that's good. I think anything's good. And I think being dependent upon somebody in your head talking you through it, um, I think it's good. And and the research is starting to indicate that that might be the case. So I'm pretty open, pretty liberal. Yeah. And so we'll see how this question comes out, but it's piggybacking on what you just said. I feel like in various areas of life, 12-step programs, religions, whatever it may be, there's a benefit to the tradition or almost the orthodoxy of it in that it provides structure and a consistency. And we also live in a nation that's very much an individualist um, approach, maybe not as traditional very interested in science though i always say that science is the premier religion in the west but i guess my question is does anything get lost in the more buddhish parts of the population maybe the more secular approaches and is there any benefit to sticking with tradition in some sense or vice versa yeah, no, it's a really important question, and I think about this and struggle with this often. You know, I, I believe that 
being, especially early on, being steeped in a tradition is kind of important. So uh, because you have, like for all the reasons you said, you have a framework, you have an understanding of what it offers. I also feel for, you know, American know-it-alls, you can't critique or judge the tradition until you've actually learned it. You know, people will start complaining about the Theravada, the Tibetan schools before they even know anything about it, which is very American. It's also very early recovery. So I think if you're going to be critical of a tradition, you actually have to to learn it first. Um, and I honestly will say that I'm almost staunchly uh, identified with the Theravada tradition, particularly from the Burmese side. And, and I would argue, and I most of the meditation that I teach, if not all the meditation I teach, is rooted in the Mahasi tradition of their style of Vipassana, integrating the Metta Vipassana. And, and it's just my understanding from what I've noticed, and I haven't studied all of it, but when you look at the various schools of Buddhist tradition, I think the Burmese monks have done the most sincere job of really sitting a lot and really systemizing and clocking the the reality of present time awareness phenomenologically. I think they've got the best shit. So, um, and I also like a lot of the secular stuff, but I, you know, I think that we have to dedicate, it's good to have a, a tradition and it's good to learn the tradition before you start to push back on some of its ideas, which people just don't want to do. Yeah. So I have a question to uh, that's more personal in nature. You've lived a lot of different places over the past uh, decades of your life. What's one thing you miss from each place you've lived? Oh, wow. Well, let's see here. We'll start with New England. Um, I don't miss much about New England, honestly. <laughs> I do miss the fall in New England, the 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 autumn, like September, October, November in New England. It's the best place to be. So I really, really miss that, and I miss the kind of dying of the season and the kind of uh, William Cullen Bryant, Thanatopsis kind of meditation on death. That's actually been a big iconic part of my experience. So I, I do, I do miss that. Um, Nashville, everything I miss about Nashville, Nashville doesn't seem to have anymore, so that's okay. But I just live, the the kindness in the South is very interesting, Uh, the slow pace, and just, you know, Nashville, what I miss about Nashville, old Nashville, was the fact that I could be a broke Buddhist teacher musician and actually have a pretty nice quality of life. Yeah. LA's easy, I miss the food. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, totally. Um, so crossover between therapy or we'll maybe say psychology is more general and recovery programs. This is also something that's becoming very popular. There's also a crossover between neuroscience and Buddhism. So we can look at this a lot of ways, but, um, how does your interest in, let's just say, psychology influence your view of what should be included in a recovery program? Yeah, that's good. I mean, there's a lot in that. You know, I, I think um, if I just like reflect on my own experience, I didn't do any therapy-ish work till I was sober for 10 years. And that's probably good. I think this whole, you know, 
this whole culture of trauma therapy. I think the the therapeutic world tries to do therapy with people in early recovery that they're just not ready to handle. Uh, and I think that's a problem. Sometimes they are, but that's a very slippery slope for me. Um, I, 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 and when you actually, there's a great model of recovery called a three phase model where phase one is like year one to six, phase two is year like five to 15, phase three is 15 years up. Typically, I believe that for the most part, therapy, trauma therapy, any kind of, you know, therapeutic intervention that's going to bring up some real shit is a kind of phase two recovery thing. You know, I think people need to like learn how to pay their cell phone bill and like, you know, I think that people actually in the first phase of recovery, they need counseling. Uh, I think it's more of a counseling thing than it is a therapeutic thing. No, that's not 100%, but I think generally speaking, um, trying to do traditional or even more advanced sort of levels of psychotherapy. You've done so, You've done some therapy. You know, you've been through some hard shit in a the therapy chair. Mm-hmm. Like, would you have done that when you had 30 days or 60 days, 90 days clean? You probably would have ran out of the room and went and got high. Yeah, for me, it's about depth. I think the longer I stayed clean, the more open I was to looking at uh, where I was hung up and stuck, you know, the more I could tolerate, I think the dissonance that comes from uh, doing deep therapy work. Yeah. And so I think I would, uh, I agree, actually, counseling is what I needed more behavioral counseling and life skills that I got from 12 steps and got also from peers. And then the deeper therapy work, uh, I feel like just wouldn't have been as fruitful. Uh, I would have wasted a lot of money. <laughs> no, I'm with you. In fact, you bring it up because uh, just thinking about this, this is one of one of the primary reasons I didn't go the clinical route. I didn't go to school. I didn't get a LADAC. I didn't go the therapy route. Was I? I and this is one of the reasons why I think it's not good for early recovery is the objectivity that is required from a therapeutic relationship. Like you're not really supposed to tell people what to do. You're not supposed to help. You're supposed to be this objective person. And early on, I don't need objectivity. I need someone to say, dude, you need to stop doing that. Yeah. And so there's not really um, great accountability built into that therapeutic relationship, which I think can be destructive because, you know, the, the client, if you will, can start manipulating the therapist. And most addicts, many of the addicts I've worked with are really good at manipulating people. Yeah, I find that there's there's a need for behaviorally driven therapy like DBT or 12-step related kind of um, avenues for people to get clean that are behaviorally based. And those are about accountability and creating a contract together. And I think those types of therapies are really great for people in early recovery. But um, like you said, these more non-judgmental presence, objective, supportive, you can spend a lot of money and get nowhere if uh, you're not ready to do the digging or don't come in with that mentality. So, but let me ask you about, so along these lines of the crossover between psychology and recovery tell us more about cultivating emotional balance which is something you've been into and how do you see maybe that work that you've done 
being important or informing your perspective on Buddhist recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I could say we could talk we could talk about this for an hour, but what I realized is that I don't for me, Dharma work didn't get at the suffering I was experiencing in my emotional domain. It just wasn't getting at it. Um, and in fact, I even got to the point where I unintentionally could could use Vipassana-type techniques to suppress emotion, which is sort of what we talk about spiritual bypass. I mean, I wasn't meaning to do it. I wasn't like, I'm going to suppress my emotions through these meditative techniques. But that often is very often the case. So the thing that was most helpful about the emotional work was actually good scientific knowledge education on what are the universal emotions. You know, how are they experienced in my physiology? How are they manifested in my mind? Um, And having a really good sense for basically emotional intelligence to know what you're feeling while you're feeling it. And most people do not have it. And so I think that the map created by like my friend Eve Ekman and her dad, Paul Ekman, Daniel Goleman, there's a whole bunch of people who've been doing this for 20 years, is really nothing compares. Um, and, And interestingly enough, cultivating emotional balance is saying, actually, the greatest vehicle to navigate and to look around in the world of your emotions is Buddhist meditation. So if you take Buddhist meditation practices and integrate them into the science of emotion, you'll learn. I learned so much about myself. Uh, It was the greatest education I've ever had. And the thing about cultivating emotional balance that I love so much is the path to happiness is emotions. Emotions aren't the problem. They're not blocking me. They're actually the path to awakening. They're the, the path to having a meaningful life. And so bringing that full circle and kind of bringing that into the Dharma truth and the path factors, it's just, for me, I'm like, okay, here we are. Now we have a complete system. Mm -hmm. And on this note, you're a big proponent of the heart practices, teaching these to people and the big part of your, your teaching. What do you feel like, I've heard you speak a lot about um, the nuances of uh, metta and com- compassion and gratitude and equanimity. What do you feel like are some of the most common hangups around the heart practices? And these can be specific or general. I'm yeah. just curious. I think the general one points to something you mentioned earlier. I think people get caught up on the technique. And, and, and one could argue that there's really not so much a technique. I mean, we say these phrases, we do these prompts, but that's actually not the technique. And one thing I, my teacher, Stephen Smith, has always been uh, encouraging me, teach Brahma Vihara, teach Brahma Vihara, teach Metavipassana, do it, no one else is doing it, people need it, is that if you, if you integrate these worlds now, if you talk about Buddha Dharma, you talk about like trauma therapy, psychology, you talk about like emotions, or even the word spirituality, there's a tremendous part of all of those experiences that I would call nonverbal. So we have a tremendous part of our experience that's nonverbal. We can feel it, we're affected by it, but I just can't explain it. And so that's where the Brahma Viharas live. They live in that nonverbal part of our experience. And so how you, you know, I can't tell you how to get there because it's nonverbal, right? That's sort of the annoying part of it. 
But people I find who commit to the practice and do the metavipassana system actually without too much time start to go, oh, 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 okay, I get, I think I get it now. Because it's the saying of the phrase is one thing. That's what people focus on, which is the least important part. I say the phrase, may I be at ease, and then I watch how my system responds to that prompt. That's what I'm watching for. I'm watching for the response. Do I get do I get tight? Do I feel suspicious? Do I feel connected? What's going on there? So it's kind of like a trigger practice. I say, may I learn to care about my suffering? And then I see how my system deals with that idea. And so I think that's probably the most clear way I can describe how that might work. Yeah. What do you feel is the role of community in Buddhist recovery? It seems to be the cornerstone of it in 12-step programs. I know for me, it was definitely an essential, if not the most essential component. So what do you see for maybe the future of the Buddhist recovery movement um, in terms of peer support and support groups or sponsorship, things like that. Yeah, I have um, very, probably more mixed feelings about this than anything you've brought up um, because I think it can be very, very helpful and, and to some degree is essential. And I think it can also be very dangerous and very damaging um, because, uh, yeah, for a whole bunch of reasons. So, um I think everybody has to come to terms with how important that is. I think everybody's very, very different that way. A lot of it also comes down to like your attachment situation, how you relate to relationships. And so everybody's so different that way. It's been very, very important for me at times. At times it's been not important at all. And actually having been part of the fallout of refuge recovery and against the stream before that and all things associated with Noah Levine, it's also been very dangerous and very damaging to me. So it's a, it's a very tricky situation. But I think ultimately what we have to do is you have to develop your own community. And I would say your peer structure. Like I, have my, I don't have a Buddhist community. I have a community. You're part of my community. Like I talk to you. You know, we check in often. I, I have to, I kind of have to hand, it's like, you know, when you become president, right? You have to handpick your department. Like you got to handpick these people. You can't just walk into a recovery meeting and go, well, everybody here is in recovery, so they're all safe. Mm. You know, this whole thing, well, this is, a, you know, people say, oh, this is a safe place. I'm like, really? How do you know? You don't even know half these fucking people. You're going to tell me this place is safe? So I think that, um, especially now with the COVID situation, it's a really, I think, very controversial, especially to the state of the Buddhist recovery world, you know, between recovery dharma and refuge recovery, from what I've heard from a lot of people, it's such a shit show now uh, that um, a lot of people are just like, whatever, I'm just going to go back to my 12-step meeting. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons I wanted to take advantage of the COVID and be like, well, we can't meet. Let's meet online. Certainly much safer. And I'm not a th the authority. I just, I just created a class. So it's kind of cool. There's like a three-ray relationship. There's a teacher, there's a student, and then there's all this content. And the content is the course. I'm not the course. And I'm not convinced that all my content is good or right. Um, but let's let's take a look at it. Yeah, this is a good segue. Tell us more about the content of the Buddhist recovery 
program that you've developed. What is it called? What's the name of it? It's you know, it's just benign. It's called Buddhist Recovery Online Class and Community because it's okay. pretty clear what that is. They didn't want to come up with some right. fancy name. But, you know, I think because of COVID and people acclimating to Zoom, now is a good time to do this experiment where um, I'm kind of sticking a little bit of a flag in the ground saying, this is what I think Buddhist recovery is. It's, it's first of all, it's the three trainings. You have to train in these three ways. Um, sorry, that's just how it is. Uh, and then you use the first three truths as tasks, as Bachelor would say. So... The Four Noble Truths are not these like doctrines I quote unquote believe in. They're injunctions. They're things I'm being asked to do, and they're all very different. So I outline that in pretty great detail. Here's what you do on the first one. Here's what you do on the second one. Here's what you do on the third one. And from the third one allows you. So I I would say like wisdom and recovery are synonymous. I would say the twelve uh, the twelve steps in the eightfold path are sort of synonymous. The goal, of course, is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. And to cultivate the Eightfold Path, you got to do these three trainings. Um, and you have to understand the, th- the reason why I like the aggregates, independent origination, and the Abhidharma is at least we get a sense of what the psychology of, the ad- of addiction actually looks like. You know, how is addiction taking place in my mind in the present moment experience? It's pretty clear the Buddha, po- he, he kind of unpacked that for you. So we look at some of those technical aspects, but also, it, it, you know, because there's a weekly group, we, we'll talk about it. You know, I'm I'm not totally 100% fixed that this is the right way or the only way, but I like it because it's a speci- at least I've created a map that's pretty specific. And I think, and I believe is very true to what the early tradition says. And it may be too early to tell. I have one more question for you, though. It may be too early to tell, but what are your hopes for either this Buddhist recovery community or the Buddhist recovery community in general moving forward? But let's maybe make it more personal. What are your hopes for this thing a few years down the road? You know, I don't have a lot of hopes as much as I just have a lot of curiosity. I mean, you know, my hope, of course, is that the course will be successful and people participate and they get a lot out of it and it's meaningful to them. I, of course, I hope that. But I also wanted to build something that was scalable. So like, you know, and we're getting close to 100 now anyway, but once 100 people sign up for the program, I'm going to add a night. And then I get three, if I hit 300, I'm going to add a night. So my goal would be there to be like a Buddhist recovery online group every night of the week. Maybe uh, getting into affinity stuff, you know, like if I got busy, you know, you'd be one of the first people I would ask to say, hey, can you take a night on and and also be able to, because the course is subscription based, you know, being able to pay somebody like you and some other skilled trained people who can hold it down and actually can get some support out of it. So my, my hope would be that it would be that successful where it could actually employ some people and be so regular and then ultimately, of course, it'd be great that we could take this to a retreat format, like meet in place with the people in the course who have learned the course and say, let's spend five days looking at this stuff. So, I mean, you know, I guess I guess I could honestly say that would be my hope is for it to get there. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm not I'm not attached. I'm mostly just kind of curious to see how it goes. And I know there's going to be some pushback. I've already gotten some. Because there are two other, there are some other Buddhist recovery programs out there, and and I've been part of them, um, but mostly people have been sort of 
expressing their disappointment and their aggravation that they're very interested in this Buddhist recovery. But the general theme is people are like, I don't know what to do. Mm. I want to do Buddhist recovery. How, what, I don't even know what I should be doing. Should I be meditating? Should I be reading? They have no direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and perhaps this is the benefit of having a class structure where you have a teacher um, not as an authority figure, but as a support to steer the ship. Like we had talked about in our earlier questions, having structure is really helpful. I totally. think we all yearn for it and it keeps us, uh, gives us parameters that we can be curious about as we move forward. It also gives us specific things to discuss. Like people are like, well, this doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, well, let's talk about it. Let's spend 20 minutes talking about this one little nugget. Because otherwise it becomes too tangential and people just, you know, I think if you go to an AA, you know, if you go to an AA meeting and it's a newcomer meeting and they're all newcomers, they're all going to end up at the bar. Somebody right. needs to know what the hell's going on. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, Dave, thanks so much for inviting me to do this. I'm very excited for the recovery program um, and the course that you're starting, the online community that you're starting. And uh, yeah, it's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.